All right, neighbors, Brie doesn't know this, but I am doing a secret recording. Um, this last week and a half, she was busy moving, and I thought it would be nice to put something out. Um, she is so incredibly busy and stresses out about the podcast constantly and worries about putting out content for everybody so I thought it would be nice to surprise her with this little treat so I'm going to read you um, a story from that book that I had purchased before I moved from Alaska called my turkey has hypothermia officer um, I believe I shared it in one of my hometown stories uh, episodes and then I'm also going to share you something from a National Geographic magazine that I purchased a couple months ago that I thought was super interesting and it's been on my bookshelf and I've been wanting to talk about it on the podcast, but I just really didn't know like an appropriate time. So I thought that would be good for Bree's section or Bree's segment of her little um ghosty and paranormals so this is chapter two from the book my turkey has hypothermia officer and this is a retired fairbanks uh, city of fairbanks officer um that wrote this book and i think it's pretty cool um and so chapter two is tales from the north pole Everyone has to start somewhere with an academy certificate in one hand and a stack of student loans, $25,000 worth, that equated to a college diploma in the other. I was ready to save the world. I spread resumes around and applied for police jobs all over Alaska, from Kodotsbu to Ketchikan. But that time, I was working as a student community service officer at the university police department on the uaf campus uaf uh for everyone that doesn't know is university alaska fairbanks campus i would be remiss if i did not take a moment to thank then chief of police terry verbeck for his unconditional support Terry really helped me when I was trying to land my first job. At the time of this writing, Terry is a deputy commissioner of the Alaska Department of Public Safety. The law enforcement community is lucky to have him going to bat for all of us. In retrospect, I am so glad that I'm not considered for some of the jobs I applied for. People are still using honey buckets as toilets in some of the communities I offered my services. If you aren't familiar with the intricacies of using honey buckets, you can research them on the internet, but make sure you click on the images tab. Just imagine a bucket being used as a repository in the absence of modern plumbing. Thankfully, they don't use honey buckets at the Santa Claus house, And that is exactly where my career began. 
at the North Pole Police Department on 125 Snowman Lane. Located approximately 14 miles southeast of Fairbanks, the city of North Pole is on the, si- on the small side with an official population of 2,220 people. Most locals refer to North Pole in the geographic sense, which covers the entire 99705 zip code. The unincorporated city of North Pole ranged south from the Fairbanks city limits to Moose Creek on the Richardson Highway. Would actually be one of the most popular cities in the state if it were in, incorporated. There are no counties in Alaska in the traditional sense. Instead, we have boroughs. Fairbanks and North Pole are both located in the Fairbanks North Star Borough. And both cities provide law enforcement services within their city limits, while the Alaska State Troopers, AST, cover the unincorporated areas. The city of North Pole is an is a summertime tourist destination that boasts the world's largest ceramic, 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 ceramic statue of Santa Claus. The Santa Claus House is a year-round attraction for tourists and a favorite place for locals to take the children during the Christmas season. There are dozens of Alaskananas history books out there on the region. So I'm not going to bore you with the discussion on the settling of the area. Growing up, kids from Fairbanks Fairbanks always thought folks who lived in the North and North Pole were a little off. And with the infamous reputation as the meth lab capital of the state, it's no wonder why. The running joke was that they should put a fence around the city, but leave the McDonald's on the outside so us good and clean Fairbanks folks can stop in on our way down the highway. All of this was no surprise for me when I started my job, and I had grown up in Fairbanks. I was sworn in on May 19, 1999, as a parole officer with the North Pole Department. North Pole Police Department. It wasn't much of a ceremony. There was no one there but me, the mayor, and their chief of police, Alan Ownby. I was the last officer Alan hired before he retired. As a parting gift, he gave me a pair of well-used Smith & Wesson black hinge handcuffs with his initials engraved near the hinge. Okay, but that's kind of cool, right? I guess he figured he didn't need them in retirement and they were better off in my belt than sitting in a box. I still kept the cuffs in my tactical vest and they've seen a great deal more use since Alan gifted them to me. It was a good thing he did as the budget for the department back then had taken a hit and good duty gear was hard to come by. My first ballistic vest had to be specially ordered because the department only had a few very used vests in storage. The only spare 
they had sitting around that kind of fit was an old white expired piece of crap with no trauma plate. I had to safety pin and duct tape the straps across my vest every time I put the damn thing on. Not only was it not safe, it was humiliating and uncomfortable, but I made the best of knowing my new vest was quote unquote on the way. Over six weeks late, uh, sorry, over six weeks later, I finally arrived. I had quite the orgasmic experience pulling that vest over my head and sliding that strap straps across my vest, chest, minus the safety pins and duct tape. Even in a small town like North Pole, where officers are generally as busy as they want to be, the Ricky Cop learning curves is fairly steep. Although the population and city limits are very small, we were often requested to provide assistance for troopers working in unincorporated North Pole. Unlike some states, Alaska police officers have statewide jurisdiction, so our authority does not end at the end, the limit sign, city limit sign. I remember those first couple of weeks on the job clearly, maybe because I was young, naive, or just plain excited to finally be doing the job, but I was proud to be a police officer. And I was determined not to just be another badge and gun on the street. I was assigned a female field training officer. And my first call was to handle an abandoned snow machine out on the dike behind the high school. Easy enough. Call a tow truck. No report and clear. The first vehicle I pulled over was for speeding on 8th Avenue. The vehicle was a minivan. And the driver was a nice lady accompanied by her young daughter. I did not issue a citation, and I'm certain I'm more nervous than she was. My first arrest came at the end of my first week on the job. My field training officer and I received a tip that a guy named the guy, uh, that a guy named by the name of Jr. was hiding out in his girlfriend's apartment. The apartment was located around the corner from the police station. I knocked on the door. He answered it and invited us into the apartment. I'm not sure if he just figured the game was up or if he was even aware he was wanted. Regardless, he was taken into my custody without much excitement. Regardless, oh, I'm sorry. Regardless, he was taken into custody without much excitement. I would like to think it was my command presence that forced him to comply so easily. But in reality, my hands were trembling when I slid the cuffs first on his right wrist, then his left. In retrospect, there's no doubt he could tell I was a rookie. As this wasn't his first trip into the block. And this would not be his last. I would have the pleasure of arresting Jr. But I'll save that for a later time. A couple weeks later, I was transferred to graveyard shift, which is midnight to a.m. 8 a.m. 
still writing with the same female uh, field training officer is what it means. The first evening was especially memorable. We were doing a bar check at a local watering hole named Blackie's Bar, a known Hell's Angel hangout. My FTO, field training officer, recognized one of the guys in the bar as someone she thought had a warrant. Ironically, his last name was Lawless. Dispatch confirmed the warrant was valid, and right then I knew I had a problem. I told my FTO I was going to escort the gentleman outside and hook him up. She was scared and didn't want to go inside the bar. I couldn't understand why. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? I was young and ready to brawl, so a bar full of bikers wasn't going to stop me. She she reluctantly followed me inside the crowded bar. Despite my FTO's misgivings, I walked up to the bar where Mr. Lawless sat nursing his Budweiser. He seemed to be having a rather personal connection with it, staring broodingly into the bottle opening. And I could tell that before I even reached him, his shoulders were tensed, his knuckles white. He didn't look at me, but I knew. He knew I was there. When I wrapped my knuckles onto the bar counter and told him to meet me outside, I got that side eye that told me I had already said the wrong thing. In retrospect, it could have been perceived like I was calling him outside to fight as well. Maybe that is what he thought too. Doubtless, he was sizing me up on the way to the door. And I am average. I'm an average size guy, six foot and about 195 pounds. Sex suspects don't know if they can take you or not. So they have a decision to make and make it quickly. If you act nervous at all or show any signs of weakness, their decision is easy. They think they can win. Suspects don't like fighting with female officers for obvious reasons. And they are usually smart enough not to scrap with officers sporting bodybuilder physiques. Average-sized officers often end up at a, as good candidates for fights. As soon as we walked outside, I grabbed his arm and told him he was under arrest for a warrant. And the fight was on. He took a swing, which I blocked. And then I threw him up against the front of his truck, which happened to be parked near the front door. He tried to elbow me a couple times, but I was able to get my hands wrapped around his head and take him to the ground hard. I put my shin across the guy's ear and put some weight on his head until he quit squirming around. And what was my FTO doing while this was going on? She was dancing around like she had to piss really bad while threatening the guy and me with pepper spray. She was in condition black. She had totally lost it. With Lawless flattened beneath me, I told her to calm down and to radio dispatch and request Alaska State Troopers 
to respond for help. The nearest trooper was at the AST post, Alaska State Trooper Post headquarters, but they covered the 15 miles to North Pole in record time. I still remember the wonderful sound of that siren echoing on that cold winter night, becoming as loud, becoming louder as they got closer as Lawless and I struggled on the ground. My FTO stood there yelling at Lawless to stop fighting, but she never joined the fight. I finally, I was finally able to get on top of him and pin him to the ground. I was lucky that no one inside the bar knew what was happening outside. As some of his biker friends had come to aid, to his aid, I would have been been in real trouble. The sound of that siren got closer and Trooper Pat Nelson, who was also in training with AST, slid to a stop in the icy parking lot and ran over for help. We got lawless in cuffs and I was finally able to catch my breath. I needed to get into better shape. After fighting nonstop for what seemed like 20 minutes, I found myself gasping for air. I could have easily gotten my ass kicked if Lawless helped him. Lawless himself had been in better shape. It was a hard lesson learned, but one I took to heart. And so that's actually only halfway through the story. I'm going to stop right there for now. And maybe read it to you guys later okay so the gory shocking science mysteries explain details in chapter two it says the title is if the shoe floats a flood of feet in british columbia on august 20th 2007 a 12 year old girl spotted a lone blue and white running shoe a man size 12 on a beach of British Columbia, Jedediah Island. She looked inside and found a sock. She looked inside the sock and found a foot. Six days later on nearby Garibola, Gabriola Island, a Vancouver couple enjoying a seaside hike came across a black and white Reebok. Inside it was another decomposing foot. It too was the size men's 12. The two feet clearly did not, didn't belong to the same person. The shoe themselves were different and both contained right feet. Police were stunned. Two being found in such a short period of time is quite suspicious. Gary Cox, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, told Vancouver Sun. Finding one foot is like a million to one odds, but to find two is crazy. Over the course of the next 12 years, a total of 15 feet were discovered in the same area around Vancouver Island, part of a network of waterway waterways called the Salayash Sea. 
six more turned up in Puget Sound across the U.S. border at the southern end of the sea. With the expectation of one foot wearing an old hiking boot, all of them were encased in sneakers. The discoveries ranchet, ratcheted up the public sphere and media speculation soared. Tipsters called police with all manners of theories about the origins of the feet. We get some very interesting tips that come in about serial colors or containers full of migrants that are sitting at the bottom of the ocean. Aliens, aliens had been one of them as well, says Laura Yazadjian, a for, forensic anthropologist who worked as a human identification specialist for the British Columbia Coroner Service and Ocean Oh uh, sorry occasionally a psychic actually pretty much every single time a psychic will call and offer to help this type of mystery requires scientific rather than criminal or a psychic in- investigation Science can answer all the obvious questions, yet the research that had addressed these questions is anything but obvious. To understand how the feet got where they did, we have to follow some unexpected lines of inquiry involving everything from the science of seeking sinking to the decomposition of pigs and the spreading of oil spills once in the water a cadaver's first move will be either to float or to sink a floating object will be carried by wind and surface currents and might soon wash ashore a sinker however might maintain in place or be tugged in a different direction by deeper currents what's more a floating body exposed to air will decompress differently from one that sinks with ramifications for the fate of its feet one might assume that a drowning person will sink because their lungs are full of water and that a cadaver's air-filled lungs would otherwise act as a flotation device. But the reality is not that simple. In a 1977 article titled Human Body Buoyancy, a study of 98 men, E.R. Dongo of the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology set out to settle the matter. Give me a second. It's telling me to. There we go. Using data collected in 1942, the 98 men in question were healthy U.S. Navy men in their 20 to 40 years age group. Each were suspended underwater and weighed both with his lungs full of air and after expelling as much as possible. It is not easy not an easy task to wait to be weighed underwater with no air in your lungs but again 
these were Navy men. With their lungs fully inflated with air, all the men floated. But once they had emptied their lungs, as would be the case with a dead body, most of the men sank in fresh water. Only 7% floated. In seawater, though, people are more buoyant. 69% of the Navy men would float if they were dead and naked in the ocean. Donoghue estimated, but it was a close call. Just a little added weight, such as heavy clothing or water in the lungs, could cause the body to sink. In the end, the data suggested cadavers are overall more likely to sink than to float, and people who drawn are most likely to sink drown sorry people who drown are most likely to sink what's more once a body sinks it tends to go straight to the bottom sometimes an underwater cadaver will eventually bloat but like a body on land causing it to bob to the surface but that doesn't always happen in a deep lake or an ocean it may never come back up the cold inhabits decay in deep waters and the greater water pressure prevents any gases from expanding and causing bodies to float instead other microbial processes take over and convert a sudden body's tissue to uh, oh my gosh i don't even know this adipocor that's kind of a waxy, soapy-like tissue, she says. Oh my gosh, I'm going to say it again. Adipocurs can persist for years, even centuries, in a low-oxygen environment. And that's exactly what Yasmigadin saw on the feet she examined from the Saldaish Sea. Salish Sea. They were covered in oh my, the stupid ad of Gripers, suggesting that the cadavers sank and remained underwater as they decomposed. That could explain why the remains of the body were, why the, why, oh, sorry. Uh, that could explain where the remainders of the bodies were. They sank and stayed sunken. But why did the feet stay down with the bodies? I don't know. Will we ever know? Scientists study the process of human cadavers decom decomposition at several U.S. forensic research sites on land. None had ventured to drop a body into the ocean. In the summer of 2007, forensic scientists Gail Anderson of Simon Fraser University was conducting a study for the Canadian Police Research Center, Center to understand how quickly a homicide victim would decompose in the ocean. Because Canadian ethics rules prelude, preclude using human bodies, she used dead pigs instead. Pigs had often been used in for forensic research as standards for human bodies. We all know this. 
They are roughly comparable in size and quite similar, similar biologically. Even better, Anderson conducted her study in the Salish Sea, not far from where the third human foot would be found six months later. Her team dropped the dead pig into the water, and it promptly sank 308 feet to the seafloor. A large and unruly mob of shrimp, lobster, and dungeness crabs destined to eat the carcass. Underwater scavengers like crustinins will work around the bones and other tough obstacles, preferring to pick apart soft tissues. And unlike the bony ball and socket joints, like the joints our legs and our hips, our ankles are made up, mostly our soft stuff, ligaments, and other connective tissue. So it follows that a sunken shoe wearing a cadaver and the Salish Sea is likely to be chewed up by scavengers and have its feet disarticulated, oh my goodness, from the rest of the body in a short order. And as the scientist tells me, all the Salish Sea feet appear to have been separated from their bodies by natural natural processes like scavenging and decomposition. Please don't call them severed feet, she warns. Severed means that someone cut them off, she explains. And the coroner service never found cut marks of any of the bones to suggest that. What's more, feet that are wearing sneakers made it in the last decade or so would almost certainly float. Sneaker soles are commonly made with gas-filled pockets visible in some sneakers found in the Salish Sea. And starting around that time, the foams used to create the soles became noticeably lighter with more air mixed in. In other words, they became buoyant. Isn't that crazy? So what it means is, so the article goes on for like another couple pages, but basically it's saying that the person either fell off the boat or whatever, but it wasn't someone like a serial killer that was cutting off one foot and leaving the foot out. It was the 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 mammals or the animals or whatever that you want to call them, the fish in the sea that are cutting off the foot and letting and then the foot would float to the the surface it's not crazy that's so crazy i thought it was gonna be so i looked through this magazine again while i was um before i recorded and i thought there was more about ghosts and stuff and i guess that's not what this magazine's about so i am sorry brie there's no paranormal in this episode but it's better than nothing. Um, love you guys. We are recording 
this comes out tomorrow, but we are recording tomorrow also, so there will be an episode out next week. I am so sorry if this was lame and boring to you. Um, actually, I'm not sorry because I could not be doing it, period. Right? 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 All right. Love you guys. Have a great night. Um, have you checked in on the neighbors? What's in the neighbors? Bree is not in. Amy is out. Say hi to your cats for us. And don't get dead. Goodbye.